All right, well, good morning. Morning. Good to see you guys today. Let's try that again. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Wake you guys up out there. It is a little rainy, a little dreary, but uh, we're here to worship the Lord today. And so uh, we're going to shine bright for Him. All right, we're in Jonah. Jonah is where we're at. We have made it over to chapter 3 today. Jonah chapter 3, and we're in this series uh, through the book of Jonah, the unlikely response of a God-sent missionary. The unlikely response of a God-sent missionary. And we've been looking at Jonah uh, one chapter at a time, and that's going to be our plan through the rest of the book as well. So today we'll cover Jonah chapter 3, and then next week we'll be in Jonah chapter 4. And this morning we're looking at how can we change people's lives and the nation. How can we change people's lives in the nation in which we live? I mean, that's on everybody's mind these days, particularly about how we might change our own life, and then how might we change the nation in which we currently live. So how can we do that? We're going to look at God's Word this morning, and we're going to learn more about that. Let me go ahead and read Jonah chapter 3. It's just 10 verses, so we'll go ahead and read that, and then we'll work back through that systematically. But Now let me go ahead and read this text for you this morning. We'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Beginning in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go out to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it in the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you this morning thankful for this opportunity to gather together as as your church, Lord, uh, to open your word and to hear from you, God. And this morning, as we walk through this text, help us to do just that, to hear from you. Uh, Convict us. Change us, Lord. Empower us, God. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I love books. And over the years, I've amassed quite a collection of books. Not near as many as my, some of my friends have, but I'd say they have a, a healthy collection at this point. And, and as most book lovers do, I love bookstores. I mean, I can spend hours in a bookstore just, just looking around. And, and Jen, she used to be okay with going to the bookstore with me, but, but she's kind of learned by now that if we go to the bookstore together, I may be there for an hour or so. And so she's like, no, no, you can, you can go to the bookstore by, your, by yourself. 
One of the things that I like to do when I'm in the bookstore is, is I like to peruse the, the self-help and spirituality sections. Not because I'm interested in purchasing a self-help book or, or some spirituality type book, but, but I want to know what is out there. I want to know what are other people running to? What are other people counting on to help them in their life that they believe will make a difference? In these sections, you, you will find all sorts of of books, books that promise to help you win friends and influence people, books that will help you to become a highly effective person, to, to stop worrying and, and to start living, to gain happiness, to lead people, to fulfill your dreams. And yes, all those are titles of books that are out there. And there are many, many more, all with very similar titles, all with very similar ideas. While all of these books promise that, that they can help you in all of these different areas, I don't believe they can ultimately drive the change that they promise, nor can they fix the mess that this nation is in. And that's because these books, they, they focus on the self. They, they attempt to pull the best you out of you. And what's inherently wrong with that idea is that, that we're actually all broken people. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, we have experienced corruption. And because, because we are corrupted to our core, we cannot rise above in and of ourselves. We can't uncorrupt ourselves no matter how many books, no matter how many seminars you attend, no matter how many life coaches that you, you know, hire, you cannot change yourself. You see, self, self-help is a falsity. If these books and these ideas behind them can't change people, if they can't fix our nation, then we have to ask, well, well, what can? Well, as we begin to look at the text this morning, we see that the gospel can. The good news that, that God sent a Messiah who is Jesus. And Jesus not only pays the penalty for our rebellion, but, but he actually creates a new humanity that can experience freedom from corruption. See, Jesus saves us. Jesus changes us. Jesus is the one who provides us with hope. And those who have experienced the hope of Jesus, those who desire to see their family, their community, their, their state, even their nation changed, those who are saved should desire to spread the gospel. Now, if you remember uh, up to this point in the series in the book of Jonah, God has asked Jonah to go to Nineveh. God asked Jonah to to preach a message to the Ninevites. But because they were his enemies, he didn't want want them to experience salvation. And so Jonah decided that he was going to board a boat and he was going to go to Tarshish. He was going to get as far away from Nineveh as humanly possible. And God, he, he said, no, that's, that's not the case, Jonah. That's not what's going to happen. You see, I have purpose to use you. And because I have purpose to use you, I'm going to use you. And so he says, I want you to preach to the Ninevites. But instead of, instead of allowing Jonah to escape then to Tarshish, what happens is, is he comes, God comes, and he blocks Jonah's path with this huge, huge storm. And when Jonah finally figures out that, hey, this storm is here because of me, uh, he tells the sailors on the boat, hey, throw me in, get rid of me, cast me into the sea, save your own lives. That is the only way that you are going to be saved. And so just as soon as they did, miraculously, the water comes. This massive raging storm is like a crystal clear lake. Jonah sinks to the bottom 
of the sea. And at this point, Jonah desires to, to die. But Jonah doesn't have a choice. God has purpose that he was going to use him. And so as he's sinking to the bottom of the sea, as the weeds are wrapped around his head, he tells us in chapter 2, a huge fish comes and swallows him up. And for three days and three nights, Jonah lives miraculously in the belly of this fish. And inside the belly of the fish, Jonah comes to his senses. He, he repents, he prays to the Lord, and then this fish spits Jonah out on dry land. And that's how we end chapter 2. So here we, we pick up in, in chapter 3. And God is asking Jonah to go once again to Nineveh. You see that there in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, how does Jonah respond this time? We're hoping that Jonah has come to his senses. And so does he, does he decide to go? Does he refuse once again? Well, Jonah decides that it's probably wise for him to go. And so verse 3 again, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So Jonah obeyed the Lord. He, didn't, he did as he was asked and he set off to Nineveh to preach to them. Now, Nineveh is not a, a small city at all. Nineveh is, is, is a large city. The text tells us that, that it took three days to walk across Nineveh. And just to give you an idea how that far that is, imagine walking from Red Oak to, to Fort Worth. I mean, this is the size of Nineveh. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like the Metroplex, right? The DFW Metroplex. With Nineveh being as large as it was, Jonah, he couldn't just go to the center of the city and, and preach there. Jonah had to go to these sections of the city. And so we're told that, that Jonah goes, you know, in, into one district. He goes a, a day's journey in. He stops and he preaches the following message to Ninevites. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now we're going to get to Jonah's sermon here in a minute, but, but I find it amazing that, that Jonah was even able to preach to the Ninevites in the first place. I mean, you remember we've been talking about this, the, the, the Ninevites and the Israelites, they are their enemies. Certainly Jonah looked different than the Ninevites. Certainly Jonah spoke differently than the Ninevites. They knew that he was a foreigner and most likely they knew that Jonah was an Israelite. I mean, you know, and he was able to walk into their city without being killed right off the bat. And he's able to, to actually deliver a message to them, to, to preach to them. And so I find it amazing that Jonah was even able to enter into the city and preach in the first place. And not only is it amazing that Jonah was able to preach to them, but the message Jonah preached was not a feel-good message. Right? Jonah just straight up drops the hammer on them and says, look, God is coming with some destruction. He doesn't warm them up. Right? He doesn't open with a few jokes or some nice stories. He doesn't promise them anything. Jonah just pronounces judgment on them. Essentially, Jonah is saying, look, it doesn't matter what is, what is happening in your life right now. It doesn't matter that you've got a good job and things are actually going well for you. It doesn't matter that your birthday is coming up next week. It doesn't matter that you're about to marry off your, your daughter or, or your son is getting married. It doesn't matter that, that retirement is right around the corner. None of those things matter at all. What matters is that God is about to pour out some judgment on you and you need to take note of that. That is what is most important 
in your life right now. That's the message that Jonah gives to Nineveh. And that's the message that we need to hear as well. I mean, you see, it doesn't matter how well our life is going, how successful we are. It doesn't matter what we have planned. Life can can come to a grinding halt at any moment. We shouldn't be so naive to think that that we are going to be the ones who will escape God's judgment as if we have some inside track and, and other people just don't. I mean, consider how God... How, how this plays out in, in Psalms chapter 2. Beginning in verse 2, we read this in Psalms chapter 2. The kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the rulers, they, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. But look what happens here, what God does. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He mocks them. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, if the kings of the earth, the the most powerful people in all of the world, if the kings of the earth cannot escape God's judgment, if God looks down at them, if God holds them in derision, if he, if he mocks them, if he says, there's no way that you can get away, I have set my king up and you will bow to him. If these people cannot escape God's wrath. Who are we to think that we can? You see, Jonah's message, though harsh, is, is one that, that we need to hear as well. We must understand that, that we are not the end all be all, that the world does not revolve around us, that God is the center of the universe and we are not. Amen. And while Jonah's message is one that, that we need to hear, it seems his message is woefully inadequate. I mean, sure, Jonah could have, have said more than, than what, we're, what we're privileged to read here, this, this one-liner of a sermon. We don't know for sure, but, but what we do know is what, what we have here in the text, right? I mean, Jonah could have had a three-point sermon that was masterfully delivered, but what we get is one line. And so that's what we got to go on. And so we, we assume this is, this is Jonah's message to the city of Nineveh. And if Jonah preached solely what was recorded in the text, it seems that, that Jonah's message was, was incomplete, I mean, Jonah had the judgment piece, right? Okay, the the Lord is going to to destroy them, but there is no mention of God's grace. There's no mention of God's mercy. There's no call to to repentance at all. Just this straight up message of judgment. 40 days, you guys are gonna be gone. You're gonna be delivered. You are my enemies. I could care less about you. And I believe that was purposeful in Jonah's heart, right? When you get to the end of, of chapter four, which we'll get to next week, we see that Jonah didn't, didn't care about these people. Jonah really wanted them to be destroyed. He didn't want them to repent. He was happy to preach judgment to them, but he didn't want to preach salvation. And if you think about it, that's no way for someone who had just experienced God's salvation, God's grace and mercy in his life to think of that. You see, those who have experienced salvation should want others to experience it as well. They should want others to have the same joy and freedom and relief and grace that they have experienced. Now, I read this quote in my first message, but, but I think it's worth reading again. When your heart is gripped by the love of God poured out in the cross, 
And when you see the extent of that love and the propitiation by which Christ came, became the sacrifice for your sin, bearing wrath and entering hell for you, and when you are convinced that this Christ offers himself in redeeming love to others who do not yet know him, a passion will be lit in your heart to pursue a God-centered life, and I'd add, to pursue people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, our saving relationship with Jesus should motivate us to pursue other people with the gospel. And if that's true, then outreach, you know, reaching out to other people, but, you know, presenting the gospel to them shouldn't be something that, that we're like, oh, I don't really know if I can do that. I don't really want to do that. It's not something that we're forced to do. Instead, it's something that, that we should want to do, right? We should want to talk about the salvation that we have experienced. We should want to talk about the grace and mercy that we, should, we have experienced. We should want other people to experience God's grace and God's mercy as well. Amen. But what happens what happens if you are ambivalent? If you find yourself ambivalent to the people around you who are lost, that this desire is, is not there. You see, if you are ambivalent, if you don't have a burden for the lost, if you don't desire other people to experience salvation, well, then what we need to do is we need to meditate on the gospel. And that's why I wanted to read this quote again, right? I mean, if your heart is gripped by the love of God poured out in the cross, we should desire to then see other people experience that, see other people's hearts gripped by the gospel. And so if we have a difficulty with that, then what we need to do is preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. We need to remind ourselves of the good news of the cross. You see, Jesus' actions on our behalf, the fact that Jesus has come and he has died for those who are his enemies, that, that Jesus works in our life to call us to himself, that Jesus saves us and transforms us and releases us from, from the corrupting influence of sin, creates a new heart and a new self and frees us from that and provides us with hope for eternity. Man, that, that should grip our hearts. We should, we should desire that and we should desire other people to experience that as well. And when we spread the gospel to others, we're going to find that, that people will hear and people will believe and people will change when they hear the gospel. People will believe and change when they hear the gospel. And that's what happens in Nineveh. Even though Jonah preached this graceless message, we're told in verse 5 that the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The response that Jonah sees is absolutely unbelievable. The, the entire district that he's preaching to believes. I mean, it will be like an entire city coming to faith in Christ all at once. I mean, that is what Jonah saw here. I mean, imagine seeing that. But, but things didn't just stop with, with one district or what we might think about in the Metroplex here as, as one city, right? I mean, it didn't stop there. The, the repentance and the change that, that happened in this, in this one district, it, it makes it all the way to the king. And we're told in verse 6 that the king of Nineveh arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Not only did the king... I mean, not only did the people repent, but the king repented as well. I mean, you just, you just don't think that that's going to happen, right? You, you, you get this picture of this king getting up from his throne, and you think this king is getting up from his throne to say, whoa, what is going on in my city? 
we got to put a stop to this. we got to put an end to this. But, but the king doesn't do that. The king takes his robe off and the king puts on sackcloth and he sits in ashes in repentance. And then, and then the king does something different. He goes a step further. He picks up Jonah's own slack. Jonah preached this message of, of judgment. He didn't, he didn't tell the, the city what they needed to do. He didn't call them to repentance or anything like that. But here's the king. In verse 7 and 9, he issues this decree. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, the king was so impacted by what he heard. Not only did he ask the city to pray, but he issued a decree to the whole city. The king didn't know that, that God would relent. He's, who knows? Maybe God will relent. Maybe God will not bring disaster on this city in 40 days. Maybe the Lord will relent. I don't know, but we need to find out. And we need to repent. We need to turn from our evil ways. That's exactly what the city does. The king's decree instructs the people to change. And all those who come to Christ, they should heed the king's instruction as well. We must step off our thrones. We must repent of our sins. We must humble ourselves before the Lord. We may not think of it like this, but, but before we come to Jesus, we each sit on a throne. The throne that we sit on is the throne of our own hearts. And we may not think of it like this, but, but this is how it is. We are what we might consider the big K king, right? That's what we think that we are. That's not what we are, but that's what we think that we are. We think that we are the big K king, that we can call the shots, that we can determine what is and what is not going to happen in our life and in this world. And if that's true, turning to the Lord then requires us to give up our position as king and allow the Lord to be the king of our life which means that we must do what this king did. We must step down from our throne and we must allow the Lord to sit on it. And not only must we allow the Lord to sit on the throne of our lives, but, but if we claim to be Christians, then we must strive to be like Christ. We, we must turn from a sinful lifestyle. We must repent. That's what repentance means. It means to turn, to do a 180, to turn back to God. To, to repent of our unbelief that we are the big K kings. To repent of our unbelief that, 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 that we can, or to repent of our belief that we can call the shots. We repent. We turn back to God. And we begin to follow Jesus. See, that's, that's what true Christians do. That's what those who have really been affected by the gospel do. They step down from the throne and they begin to follow Jesus. Amen. They begin to, to desire the things that Jesus desires. They begin to see a change in their lives. That's what true Christians experience. You see, we, not only do we not operate the way that we used to operate, but we don't want to operate that way. And that's, that's the difference of this changed heart that we're talking about 
that happens when we come to Christ, this new self that happens when we come to Christ. You see, oftentimes the world looks at Christianity and the world says, man, there's just a bunch of rules that you got to follow. And sometimes people get caught up in that and they say, yeah, I want to follow those rules. I'm going to do that. And it's real difficult. It's very hard for them to do that. It feels like it's just these chains that are wrapped around them. This is why you see in in the book of Psalms, the the kings are saying, I'm going to bust these cords that that are around me. It just feels like you're being held down. But when you truly come to Christ and when your heart has truly been changed, it doesn't feel like that. It's not like you're fighting against these cords or these chains that are holding you there. It's not like you're just trying to follow some rules that are in this book. No, you desire to live differently because your heart has truly been changed. That's what it looks like for us to come to Christ. That's why these That's why Christ can change us where self-help books can't. You see, self-help books, that's what they're doing. They're just trying to provide you with some different ways that that you can can better yourself. But Christ is actually changing you. That's why we don't need self-help books. That's why self-help books won't work. And so let me challenge you to ask yourself some questions if you claim to be a Christian. Have you stepped off the throne of your heart? Are you allowing God to be the king of your life? Or are you still trying to operate as the big K king? Have you seen a noticeable change in your desires and your actions since you have claimed to be a Christian? You see, those who believe in and profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior not only believe that he died for their sins, but they also believe that he is the Lord of their life, that he is their king, the one who has the right to direct their life. And ironically, when we, look at, when we look at this book here that we have in front of us, the book that we're studying, the book of Jonah, it seems that the king, and not Jonah, turns out to be the example that we should follow in this narrative. Not only is the king a great example for us to follow, but we also see that the king's actions resulted in the whole city repenting. What initially started out as this this small group, this district, has reached all the way to the king. The king has issued this decree, and we see an unbelievable response in Nineveh. Something you would never expect to happen, happened. The city repented. Now, when I lived in Dallas, I used to get together with some guys at at Cafe Brazil to discuss God's Word. Now, Cafe Brazil is kind of like IHOP, but it's way better than IHOP. Um, And so if if you go to Dallas, Cafe Brazil is where it's at. Our meeting at Cafe Brazil, I mean, it's pretty much like our our men's group that we have now. We gather together, we open the Word, we just discuss the Word. And one night we were there, we we would go every week and we'd have the, a lot of times we'd have the same waiter, but but this night we had a different different waiter. And as we are there, we're we're discussing the Word, we're just talking amongst ourselves. Uh, We really didn't engage our waiter with with the gospel, but, but our waiter, waiter keeps coming by and he keeps hearing what we're talking about. And then, and then he just asks us like, hey, I hear you guys are talking about, about Jesus and what you're talking about is, is what I need. And so then we begin to engage him with the gospel and our waiter gets, gets saved right there. I mean, what you would not expect to happen, happens. And it's not like he just heard this and it's like, okay, I need to believe in Jesus so I can get some fire insurance. No, like he actually changed. He started coming to church with us. He come coming to Bible study with us. And you could see a noticeable change in this guy's life. 
You see, the unexpected will happen when people hear the gospel. They will believe and they will change. And not only will, will individuals change, but, but whole cities and nations will change. In 1857, Jeremiah Lanfer was a businessman who lived in, in New York City. He saw that the New York City was just rampant with sin. He decided, I'm going to do something about this. He starts a prayer meeting. At first, the, the prayer meeting was not well attended, but but within months, I mean, there were thousands of people who were gathering together over the lunch hour to pray. 10,000 people in total would gather. And you know what happened? Well, it set off the third great awakening. It's estimated that between 1857 and 1859, over half a million people came into the church. In New York City, nearly all the churches grew by 50% in membership in that two to three year period. I mean, imagine what, what New York was like after that. I'm sure that, that it, was, it was completely changed during that time. And what a, what a small group of people ended up doing is impacting the entire city. And that's because people will believe and people will change when they hear the gospel. Knowing that, we should be motivated to spread the gospel as well to those around us. I mean, it only takes a small group of people set on fire by the word of the Lord to make a difference in their communities. If we want to see our community, if we want to see our state, if we want to see our, our nation change, what we need to do is we need to, to spread the gospel. If we do that, then, then we may have the privilege of seeing what Jonah saw or even what, what Peter saw at Pentecost where we've got thousands who are, who are coming to Christ. And we should be motivated to spread the gospel because people will believe and change when they hear the gospel. And when people believe and change, we learn that God relents from His disaster. In verse 10, we're told that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so instead of destroying Nineveh, God actually relented. He didn't punish them as he said that he was going to do. And what does God's relenting teach us? Well, well God's relenting teaches us that our God is a God of grace and mercy who doesn't desire for his creation to be destroyed. In 1 Timothy 2 3 through 4, we read this. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then in Ezekiel chapter 18, 23, recording what, what God says, Ezekiel writes, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God, and not rather that, that he should turn from his way and live. You see, it's not God's desire for us to perish. He doesn't take pleasure in, in pouring out his wrath on us, but he does it because he has to be consistent with his character. You see, our God is a holy God. Our God is a, a just God. His nature requires he punish and cast those who are sinners out of his sight. If God didn't punish sin, then God would cease to be God as we know it. He would violate his own nature. And while it's true that God must punish sin, what we see here is that, that God's desire is for people to turn, to repent, and to experience salvation. And God's relenting of this disaster in Nineveh proves that to us. As well as God's relenting teaches us that, that our God is involved with and responsive to 
his creation. You see, hearing the king call them to repent, the people did just that. They, they repented, and when God saw what they did, verse 10 again, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster. You see, God knew what took place in Nineveh. God knew that the Ninevites repented when they heard this message because God is intimately involved with his creation. Our God knows what goes on in our day-to-day lives. I mean, he's not this clockmaker God who, who created the world and set it in motion and just stepped back. And he's just this distant observer who doesn't interact with his creation. No, our God is intimately involved in the creation. And that's why as a church, we, we believe that prayer is important. And we spend time praying for one another. This is why Jeremiah Laffer called for a prayer meeting in 1857. He put this all out in the newspaper and 10,000 people were gathered together and set off a great awakening, right? Our God is intimately involved in our lives and our God is responsive to his creation. Because God hears and responds to our prayers, then we must be people who pray. And while all of that is true, while God is involved, he is responsive, we can't forget that God's relenting is conditional and generational. When the Ninevites repented and experienced God's grace and and God's mercy, God relented. But the next generation didn't follow in their footsteps. History tells us that within a generation or so, the Ninevites had had turned from, from the Lord, they had returned back to their evil ways, and their city was destroyed. And how can that happen? I mean, how can one generation repent, receive God's grace and God's mercy, while another generation is destroyed? How can our country be known as, as a Christian nation to, to, one, to one generation? And then to another generation, as we are here now, we're looking and we're saying, we're living in a post-Christian nation. How can that be so? I believe that it comes down to a lack of discipleship. The generation that repented did not teach those who came after them the ways of the Lord. And how true is that in our nation? I mean, look at New York City, right? I mean, 1859, churches in that city grew by 50% in membership. The whole city was revived. But look at New York today. It is definitely not dominated by Christians or any sort of Christian principles or actions, right? I mean, it's completely gone the other way and they celebrate it. And why has New York City done that? What comes down to a lack of discipleship? The generation that repented didn't continue to teach those who came after them the ways of the Lord. And it's crucial that that we invest in and train up the next generation. It's crucial that we be disciples who make disciples, that we are consistently replicating ourselves. You know, this last year as we moved into our new home, we we inherited a yard that was not that great. Uh, It had some potential, but it wasn't that great. And so we, we set to work. My next door neighbor... His yard is like immaculate. And uh, so he's like out there and talking to me. And I'm like, man, I can get my yard like yours. He's like, oh, you can do it. And then we talk to some other people and they, they turned us on to this guy who'd come out and fertilize and do all this stuff. And so that's exactly what we did. We hired this guy and then we set to work in our own yard as well. And, and it's been good, right? It's gotten us out of the house. It gave us something to do together. It gave us a, a yard for the boys to play in. But, but the yard that you see today, it's... Filled in, looks a lot better than it did when I first moved in. All these huge you know, mud pits that were out there last winter are not there this winter. That yard didn't just happen 
overnight. And as, I, as, as the guy would come, he would you know, spray our yard with weeds and he'd do the fertilizer and all this stuff. He'd always remind me, look, man, it's, it's going to take a while. Like, you can water it, you need to water it, but is, the yard's not going to change overnight. Like, by the end of this season, by the end of next season, I'll have your yard looking good. And by the end of this season, our yard is looking good. And, and I'm looking forward to what's going to happen next year as well. But here's the thing, it took work. It took us getting out there. It took us having someone come and fertilize the yard and, and to kill the weeds. It took us pulling those weeds. It took me out there with a hoe, just like hoeing up these huge, thick weeds that are in the yard that are just there so that new growth can come in. And the same principle applies to making disciples. It takes work. It takes us investing time. It takes us investing energy. It takes us learning and, and reaching out and getting help from, from other people. See, it, it takes us investing that time in the next generation and trusting that the word of the Lord is going to change them as they believe in the gospel. But we've got to invest the time. And that training, I believe, that, that teaching, that, that discipleship, I believe, you know, begins with us men. Men are the ones who are called by the Lord to, to shepherd their family, to be the spiritual leaders in their house. And sadly, I believe that, that many men in the country have, have failed at that job, right? And, and women, they, they see that. They experience that. And what do they do? They, they come in and they fill that, that vacuum. So that when you look at some households, what you see is you, you see the woman who is the spiritual leader in the house when the man should be the spiritual leader in the house. And I promise you, if you take up that role and you seek to be the spiritual leader in your house, things will go better in your house. It's not just a, a man is, is greater than a woman type thing. No, this is the way that God has designed things to function. When we operate in the way that God has designed for things to operate, then things will go well. But men, we, we have to step up. We have to make sure that, that we are training the next generation, that, that we are leading our families spiritually. And that's not always easy. I mean, we can get in these times where, where we're not doing that. We, we can get on cruise control where that doesn't happen. And I mean, I'm, I'm a pastor and sometimes that happens in my own family. Right? But, but, but we've got to say this is what's important. And we've got to put in the time. We've got to put in the effort. And we've got to say this is what God has put me here to do. And we have to do that. See, men, if we don't do that, if we don't shepherd our families well in church, if we don't invest in training the next generation, then the next generation is not going to follow the Lord and things are not going to change in people's lives and things are not going to change in the country. The only way that we're going to make a difference in people's lives, the only way that we're truly going to turn this nation around is by spreading the gospel to those in need and discipling the next generation. That's the only way that change is going to happen and change is going to continue. And the great thing is, is that that change can start with you and that change can start with you today. Just like a forest is set ablaze by, by one match, this nation can be set ablaze by a small group of people who are on fire for the Lord. You see, we have the potential to not only drive change in our own families, but in our own community, in our state, in our nation. But in order to do that, we've got to first begin to drive change in our own home and then in our church and then in our community. And the way we do that 
the way that we see people's lives change and the way that we see the nation change is by spreading the gospel to those in need and seeking to disciple the next generation. And that's got to be our, our focus this year as a church. We, we've got to spread the gospel. We have this Who's Your One campaign that, that we are doing. And then we also, we also have to purpose to be disciple-making disciples. And so as we see people come into the church, as we see people's lives changed, we don't stop there. We, we, we seek to disciple people. We seek to help them understand who Jesus is and how they are to live. We encourage them. We come alongside of them. We walk with them. And we begin to make disciples. And then they begin to see what it looks like to be a disciple. And they begin to make disciples. We have to constantly be replicating ourselves and reproducing if we're going to see change. And so if you're a believer here today, that's how you can respond. You can respond by purposing to spread the gospel and to learn and get to work in discipling the next generation. And if you're here today and you would admit that, that you're not a believer, well, you can respond this morning by turning to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior by, by repenting and believing the gospel. And this morning, if, if you're not ready to turn to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can also respond by asking questions. You know, Pastor Ryan and I, we, we would love to, to get together with you for uh, a meeting, to talk, to answer any questions that you might have, whether that be over the phone or, or Zoom, or maybe we grab a cup of coffee together. We would love to get together with you and begin a conversation about Jesus. And so if you're interested in that, we'll, we'll be at the back after the service and we'd be happy to, to engage with you and to set up a time to get together with you. But today, now, is an opportunity for us to respond. And as believers and non-believers alike, we are called to respond to the preached word. And so I'm going to pray and Scott's going to come up and lead us in song and We're going to respond to this message that we've heard today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day and this opportunity to gather together, to open your word, to to learn from it, Lord. And as we have learned this morning, we ask that you would help us to be faithful in spreading the gospel, that we would have a desire to do that, that we have a desire to see others come to faith in Christ, that we would pray for their salvation. And Lord, you would also empower us to be disciple-making disciples, that you would help us, Lord, to train and to teach the next generation, Lord, that that you would not allow what we have experienced to stop with us and our generation, but it would trickle down and continue for generations to come, not only in our own family, but in our church, in our community, in our nation, Lord. God, we ask that you would use us here at Eastridge Baptist Church to set ablaze this community for Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.